Hey, let me ask you this. Um, when I say, um, what's the greatest meal that you've ever had in your life? I want you to think for a second. What's the greatest meal that you've ever had in your life? Can you, can you picture it? Do you have it? I mean, maybe it was like something that your grandma made or maybe it was like this restaurant that you went to and it was like magical, I don't know. I hope none of you said Rainforest Cafe. But I can tell you when, when I think about the greatest meal that I've ever had in my whole life, it was about eight years ago. I got called to do some work in Haiti. Had a partnership with Compassion International and so I flew into Port-au-Prince and I was picked up at the airport. And I headed from the airport to Southern Haiti to a little town called Benay. Now Benay is off the beaten path and when I say off the beaten path, I mean literally off the beaten path. It, we had to go up over this um, white dusty road felt like um, you were driving on the moon. We got down to Benet and we headed to the only hotel that the town had. It was about four rooms and my door was just plywood. There was a, a, a toilet that was in the shower and um, no windows, just bars that um, kept me from the lizards, right? So I... Un unpacked my bag and our host said, hey, are you ready for dinner? And I said, sure. Now, I grew up in a house where, um, I don't know, many of you probably grew up in a house like this. Whatever gets put in front of you, you eat it, right? Right? Anybody else? You know these kids these days going, well, I don't want that. I'm going to go make some mac and cheese. That's not happening in my house. I'm going without and I'm probably getting hit. <laughs> so I... Um, I get called downstairs, and, and the only restaurant that this place had wasn't a restaurant. It was a 10 by 10 concrete slab on the backside of this hotel. And um, there was a small little table with these little tiny plastic chairs, like you would see maybe in a grade school, or I bet we have some over in our kids' ministry. There was mismatched plastic cups and Silverware. There was nothing about this experience that said, Eric, you're about to have the dining experience of your life. Now, a lady from right behind the hotel comes through this broken down picket fence with a baby on her hip and a pot in her hand. She put it on the table and she went back into her house and she came back with another pot. And um, our guide said, eat up. So I took the lid off the top of the pot and I had no idea what I was about to eat. Now I saw one, it was rice and beans. I'm like, okay, cool. Put rice and beans on my plate. The other thing I looked down in there and it was just red and meat. I don't know what it was, chicken, goat. I have no idea. But I served it up on my plate. Thought, oh, you know, we'll, we'll have a meal and I've had meals that were great and I've had meals that were tough and maybe this is one of those tough meals, right? You eat and... We'll go do our work tomorrow. And I was there with my friend Travis. And as I took the first bite of that meat, that stuff, I looked over at my friend and I was like, what the heck is this? That's the best thing I've ever had in my mouth ever. I, I ate so fast that I said, can I have some more of that? 
So she, she came over with that baby on her hip, smiled from, you know, grinning from ear to ear, slapped more on my plate. We sat there, and I mean, we filled our stomachs on these tiny little plastic chairs in the backside of nowhere as this woman stood and watched with the baby on her hip, smiling. Now, what I didn't know is not only was it the most amazing meal I'd ever had, the most amazing, I've never tasted anything like it, but there was no hotel kitchen. They had asked this woman who lived nearby to make a meal for us. This was her food for me. This wealthy, white Westerner, this woman who lived in poverty, made me a meal that I'll never forget on her dime. I thought, this, this, I, I don't care where I go in the world, it'll never be like this. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. And I thought, as I was reading through Luke chapter 9 this week, that there were probably 20,000 people who had a similar experience and for the rest of their life when asked, what was the best meal you've ever had? They remember this one meal. Now, as you know, for those of you that are new with us and those of you that are family, um, we've been reading through Luke and we'll be going through Acts this whole year chapter by chapter, diving into God's word. And so I encourage you, like, if you have a Bible, bring it. If you don't have one, go to our Connect Point. We'll get you one. I like old school because I like to touch it, but maybe you have a phone and you want to pull it out. But here's what I want to ask you to do. Pull out your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 3. Pull it up on your phone. It'll be on the side screens for those of you um, that don't have a Bible with you. And this is what it says, it says in Luke chapter three, or, uh, chapter nine, verse three, and he sent, talking about Jesus, them, the disciples, out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, now take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Jesus says, just go. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people don't welcome you, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet, as a testimony against them. So they set out and they went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So Jesus' disciples go out and they're doing his work, right? They're doing good work everywhere, everywhere. Now, it's such good work that you notice in verse seven, it says this. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. Let's pause here for a second. The disciples are going out. They're doing amazing things. And the Bible mentions Herod the Tetrarch. So let me me give you some context on who this is and why it matters. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, um, he was the ruler of Galilee. He, He ruled over this. And Tetrarch actually means quarter ruler, little ruler. That's what he was. Now, he's often referred to in the Gospels. The writers will say Herod the Tetrarch or King Herod. But don't get it twisted. This is not the same King Herod. This is King Herod's son. The King Herod, the one that killed all the babies when Jesus was first born. That's his pops. That's his dad. This is like, um, that's why he's Tetrarch. 
He's mini-me, little king, quarter king. He rules a little province. So he's, you know, trying to live up to dad's, you know, big shadow or whatever. So this is, the Bible also will mention, uh, you'll hear Jesus say a couple times, the fox. That's who he's referencing. The fox is Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, he's, he's a piece of work, all right? He's a piece of work. And so Bible tells us in verse seven, this king, mini-me, the fox, he hears, says, um, and he was perplexed. This is Herod the Tetrarch. Because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared. Now, this is all because the disciples have gone out and they're doing all this amazing work. So, so Herod the Tetrarch is going, no, wait a minute. Some are saying that John has been raised from the dead, that Elijah has appeared. Others are saying one of the prophets from long ago. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Hello? I ended all that. How, how is it that this is still going? This is mini-me. He's, he, he, he killed John the Baptist. This is that ruler. And you remember he was executed, John the Baptist, for denouncing mini-me, marrying his brother's ex-wife. So this guy was not a great guy. So Herod the Tetrarch says, who then is this I hear so much about? The disciples go out, they make a ruckus, gets back to the king. Mini-me says, wait a minute. I thought I ended this. How is this still going? So in verse nine, the Bible says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. So they're reporting to Jesus, hey, we went out in your name. We're healing people everywhere. Stuff's going crazy. Oh, and by the way, the king that killed John the Baptist, he knows what we're up to. So there's that. Bible says, then he took them. So Jesus says, okay, then we're gonna go somewhere else. He took them, they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Jesus knew about John the Baptist, obviously. He he knew that Herod the Tetrarch had killed him and he wasn't looking for a direct interaction. So he goes to Bethsaida and Bethsaida is important because that is no longer in Herod the Tetrarch's domain. It's outside his kingdom. It's actually in his brother's kingdom. And his brother's wasn't such a bad guy. So he goes just to the edge of Herod the Tetrarch's kingdom where he couldn't get grabbed by mini-me. But where he went, this deserted space, see, when you go out and you start creating miracles for people, it doesn't matter where you go. People come to see what God's up to, amen? Right? So he went to this deserted place, but the Bible tells us the crowds learned about it. They're like, no, wait a minute. Where did Jesus go? Oh, he went to this deserted place, Bethsaida. Oh, we know where Bethsaida is. It's on the backside of nowhere. We'll go there. It's like where I went to have my meal. It's nowhere. They end up there. It says in verse 11, the crowds learned. They followed him. He welcomed them. Jesus welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those that needed healing. So Jesus is doing what Jesus does. When in verse 12... It tells us what happens. Late in the afternoon, 
So Jesus has been doing his work. The disciples have been healing people as well for the weeks and months ahead. Here, here comes Jesus. He's doing all that he does, and they run into a problem. It says in verse 12, late the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, hey, um, send the crowd away so they can go to these surrounding villages and countryside and find some food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. I want to pause because the first time I read this, I actually laughed out loud. I, I know oftentimes we read scripture and we're like, well, that doesn't seem funny. It does to me because I feel like the disciples, all of us disciples, are always telling Jesus what he ought to do. You ever notice that? Okay, so Jesus is healing people. Like he's doing what he does and the disciples see a tiny little problem. Like, well, we don't have any food. And so what do they do? They start telling Jesus what we ought to go do. Out of curiosity, no raises the hands here, but are you guilty of that? Stuff isn't going quite the way you want it to go. It isn't going exactly as you foresee it. The plan is getting a little interrupted and you're like, um, Jesus, I have some advice. I think this is what we ought to do, right? The disciples are like, Jesus, listen, we need to send these people away. They need to eat somewhere. And, and I love what Jesus does because I, to me, it feels really snarky and sarcastic. Jesus replied, well, you give them something to eat then, <laughs> right? He's like, if you're so smart, if you're so smart, why don't you feed them? And the disciples are like, because uh, we don't have any food, Right? They said, we only have five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for the whole crowd, right? And the Bible tells us there are 5,000 men there. Now, hold on for a second. 5,000 men. In in reality, there were probably 20,000 people. They didn't put in the number because it wasn't customary to do so the number of women and children that were there, but scholars and theologians will tell you it's probably 20,000 people. 20,000. They're 20,000. So Jesus is like, well, you figure it out. The disciples are like, uh, we don't, we're in, the, we're in a barren place. We don't have any food. Like, do we go buy food for 20,000 people? And again, it's maybe just because I sort of have a twisted mind. Jesus is like, fine, 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 fine. I got it. I got it. Here's what I want you to do. In verse 14, he says, um, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And so the Bible tells us in verse 15, the, the disciples did so and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, right? There's 20,000 people and they're all pretty hungry, right? They're in the middle of nowhere. They came to find Jesus. He blesses the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and then he gave it to the disciples to distribute. And the Bible tells us that all 20,000 people, they were satisfied. If you grew up in church, you know this is the feeding of the 5,000. The greatest meal that was ever served. And I began to think about this particular miracle And it dawned on me that there's a few things that we can learn from the greatest meal that was ever prepared. You know, I think so often when I think about my life and I think if we're all honest, we oftentimes think about God's provision simply in terms of addition or subtraction. 
That's how we think about it. It's like, if God could just give me more, five more dollars for this day, 10 more dollars for this day, or if he could just take away that thing, that person out of my life, that job, that boss, God, it's all about for me addition and subtraction, right? We, we live on scraps. God, can I just get a little bit more? Could you take this one little thing away? I mean, that's the disciples, right? God, what are we gonna do? We have this problem. He says, you feed them. And they're like, we're gonna buy 20,000 meals? What are we gonna do? You know, God's provision is really not addition. The way he works isn't about that simple math. I think the reality around this meal, it represents for all of us that are followers of Jesus that God works in the sphere of multiplication. He does exceedingly more with what we have than we can imagine. It seems like there's a verse in the Bible that might say something about that, right? That's multiplication. But for so many of us, We think that what we have can't be multiplied. I don't know why we do this, but so often we think that what we have, the talents we have, boring or I don't have very much. I'm pretty ordinary. What I have, God couldn't use because in the sphere of addition, it's like, well, when you add nothing to nothing, it's just nothing. When you got pocket lint, it's like, I don't have anything to offer. But see, this is why this story is so powerful. God's power is not confined by its container. Let me stop for a minute. I need you to hold on to that. His power is not defined by the container. You say, what do you mean? You think that the lack of talent that you have the lack of resources you have, somehow is the dictating force of God's power. Well, if I don't have very much, he must not be able to do very much. You don't have enough talents. You don't have enough abilities. You don't have enough resources. I'm not smart enough. I've made too many mistakes. My past has jacked up everything. I'm a hot mess. No, I I get it. See, that's the power of the story. His power isn't confined by a container. In fact, those of you that walked in today and you feel somewhat powerless, you feel like you're not smart enough, you can't add enough to to your brain to figure it out, you don't have enough money. Honestly, if you're in that situation, it seems to me, according to the gospel, you're in a really great spot for God's power. Look what the apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this from me. He said, three times I pleaded, God, please, 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 minus this from me, subtract this thing from me. And this is what the Lord said. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. You don't have very much, huh? Here's the good news. God's power, it isn't defined by its container. In fact, his power is released 
in these spaces that seem unusable. And the thing is, is we see it all over the Bible. All over. Growing up. My, my parents used a phrase, those of you that grew up old school like me, I'm sure that you knew this phrase. And, you know, my mom said they didn't have a diagnosis for like ADHD when I was a kid. They didn't have that. So the doctor just said, I don't know, your kid's kind of hyperactive, right? That's what they would say, right? Because I'm old, right? He's just hyperactive. He runs around. So I was just a little like, like a little pinball, just running around. My mom didn't know any better. I was the first one, right? So she thought, all kids are like Eric. And then she had my sister and went, oh, <laughs> something's wrong with that kid. You know, parents used to say when kids like me get into stuff and I always was moving really fast, my dad would say, oh, you just wait until I get a hold of you. Anybody have, have that? You know, like your parents are like, you just wait till I get a hold of you. They couldn't catch me. Right? I was quick, like a little cat. Choo, choo, choo. I was thinking about this phrase. Wait till I get a hold of you. Wait till I get a hold of you. And I thought, isn't that the central promise of Scripture? That everything changes when God gets a hold of it. Doesn't matter what it is. I mean, think about it. You go back in Scripture and you see this. Hannah held this small child in her hands, but when she gave it to God, it became, he became this great prophet. Why? Because God got a hold of it. You go back to Ruth. Had a stalk of grain, but God used it to sustain her life and her family. Why? Because God got a hold of it. Samson picks up a dead donkey's bottom half of his face, a jaw. It's nothing. It's the Guys, it's literally nothing. And he slays an army with it. Why? Because God got a hold of it. David shows up at the fight of his life with a toy. A little tiny slingshot. What's the slingshot? No, no, no. God got a hold of it. I mean, we could go through story after story after story where it had little to do with what was in their hand. It had everything to do with God getting a hold of it. A little boy shows up. He was the smartest one in the group because he packed some food. It's a lunch, folks. I pack one every morning for Harry. I get up and I pack a sack lunch for him. I put the same doggone thing in that sack every day. That poor kid is, must be so bored of his lunches, right? It is an apple juice. He gets some applesauce. He gets a frozen yogurt. He gets a pudding cup. And I might throw in a little Reese's egg during Easter. Same thing every day. That kid shows up with this sack lunch. And there are 20,000 people that need fed. 20,000. Guys, his lunch feeds maybe two people. And this kid, he's just silly enough to offer it up. I got a, I, I got a lunch, right? God's power is not confined to the I don't 
don't know what's in front of you. But I know for this last season what I've felt. I'm not smart enough that I can't figure it out. I'm not the world's greatest leader or pastor. I'm none of those things, none of them. Most days, the things that we bring to the table, each of us, seem insignificant and small and unimportant, like a little sack lunch or a jawbone of a donkey or whatever. What I'm beginning to understand is not what we have. It's what we're willing to do with it. Letting God get a hold of whatever it is. Maybe it's your pen or your guitar or your voice or your brain or your leadership, your creative communication, your discipline, your money, a hammer, a kind word, a simple task. I don't know what small little thing you've been given, but let me make this really clear. The Bible tells us all of you have been given something. That thing you may not like very much. And you know, the funny thing is about miracles is I wondered, like, here's this kid. He shows up. He has enough courage to take a sack lunch and say, I don't know, but I'll let God get a hold of it. God does the miraculous. And you know what we do is we see miracles happen and we see that kid do what he does. And my temptation is then to get jealous and say, well, well, yeah, I mean, if I had a sack lunch, well, maybe I'd give it up too, right? We, right? We do it all the time. We're like, well, yeah, but I don't have any of that stuff. I don't. Have a bag full of fish. and It was a bag of fish. If he can use a bag of fish, he can use anything. This is what happens when God gets a hold of it and we're willing to surrender. Carrington, I think, said something about surrender and I think there's such a misconception about the concept because when we hear surrender, we hear give up, Right? You give up. Surrender is this idea where you throw your hands up and you're like, well, I just, I just give up. But, but the truth is, surrender, it is synonymous with loss. But, but not with God. Surrender is this whole concept that whatever I have, he can just have it. I don't have to get any better. I don't have to be smarter. I don't have to be anything that I'm not. Whatever I am right now, right now in this moment, he can have it. And he can do with it what he wants however he wants to do it, right where I'm at, in my home, in my work, this is how he can use me. I'll just let him have it. Little kid shows up with a sack lunch. God's power hits it. There's so much food, it says in verse 17, they were satisfied, but there are 12 baskets of food left over. 12. One for each disciple. The disciples who are like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Maybe we should go buy some food. What are we going to do? A little kid shows up. He just gives up a sack lunch. He just says, this is what I have. This is what I have. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. That's what he is able to do. And I'm praying this for us, church. However you came in here this morning, However brokenhearted, there were so many hands that went up and said, I need a miracle this day. I need a miracle this day. And I'm betting that 
as you've wrestled with where you sit, you've thought multiple times, I don't have enough to get out of this thing. I'm stuck. I got no way out. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm thinking, man, you're in a pretty good spot then. You know what my favorite part of the story is? You know what my favorite part of the story is, Carrington? My favorite part of the story is that God shows up in this little kid's life. And do you notice that the blessing wasn't just for the little kid? We often think that God's blessing is just for me. Here's how you know when God's up to something in your life. When you take the little thing that you have and it's for everybody else. You know what I'm saying? No, think about this. 20,000 people show up. If I'm the disciples, what I'm thinking is, is like, okay, we need to narrow this crowd down. How are we going to feed 20,000 people? First response would be, leave out the people that always get left out. Leave out the women. Leave out the children. Right? Well, let's shrink it even further. Let's only have the Jews eat. Let's shrink it even further. How about only people you know? Well, then we can manage this. We can manage if we can shrink this thing down. You notice what Jesus did? If you showed up, you got to eat. No prerequisite. Nobody got asked about where they were at on the holiness chart before they walked into the feeding. No, everybody got to eat. Everybody. Until they were satisfied. Look, when God gets a hold of you and what you have, it won't be just for you. When God begins to use the little pocket lint you have, what I can promise you is it will be for the healing of the nations, for the class you serve, the workplace you're in, the family you lead, the world around you. This is what God is interested in doing. Here, messages like this, and I fear we go, well, that's for little boys with sack lunches. Yeah? Just for little boys with sack lunches. It's the kids who trust just enough, right? Maybe what Jesus is inviting us to do is to revisit some childlike faith that says, I'm able to do whatever it is that you need me to do if you'll give me whatever you have to give. I'm able to do whatever it is you need me to do if you'll give me whatever you have to give. I'm able. Will you give it to me? There's a song. Um, I just became familiar with it. Carrington loves it, but I think it sort of sings that way. How's that song go? He's able. Mm -hmm. So the truth is, no matter how big the problem is, he's able. Doesn't matter what you face, what you've seen. Doesn't matter where you've been. He's able. Does it really matter if you think, I, I don't have enough in my pocket. I don't have a way out of this. The Whoa, truth is, he's able. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit in this song for a minute. And maybe what you need to be reminded of is that it isn't what you have. He's able. It's the power that he has. And all you have to do is let it go. Will you let it go this day? Will you let it go this day? Carrington, sing that song. Exceed. Bye. 